Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 for our time of study in, in God's Word this morning. We're doing a series through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our series through this book, we come this morning to John 3 verse 8, and my goal today is to cover uh, verses 8 through uh, 15. And the title of the message is Expected Traits of the Twice-Born. Expected Traits of the Twice-Born. We've all heard about, uh, I'm sure, the expected traits of firstborn children and how those traits are different from the expected traits of second-born children. Uh, Parents have these types of discussions, and to sum up uh, those differences, a mother of two children once said, and I quote, my well-behaved firstborn gave me the confidence to be a good mom. My wild secondborn taught me not to judge other mothers. (laughs) And I can laugh at that, being a secondborn child myself, and I am married to a secondborn child. If you wanted, you can actually go online and learn about what traits you might uh, be able to generally expect from your children based on their birth order. And whether those expectations hold true in every case or not, I do not know. But today, we're going to be looking at the traits that you can expect, not in those who are second-born but in those who have experienced the second birth. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, we find Jesus describing this second birth in various ways. In verse 3 and verse 7, he speaks of being born again. In verse 5, he speaks of being born of water and the Spirit And in verses 6 and 8, he speaks of being born of the Spirit. And all these expressions represent various ways of describing what we call the second birth, which is an act of God in which he gives life to a dead sinner, making that sinner a new creature who is able to believe in Christ and experience salvation. Now, last week, we studied verses 1 through 7 of John chapter 3, and in those verses, we observed Jesus making what amounts to four declarations, actually three, but we're going to break up the third one into two, and we can represent it this way. In verse 3, he teaches us that without being born again, a person cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, without being born again, a person cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, you yourself must be born again. And also in verse 7, don't be so amazed that Jesus would tell you that you must be born again. From Jesus' teaching in verses 1 through 7 that we looked at last Sunday, it is evident that being born again is absolutely important, but it leaves us with a question, and that is, have I been born again? Are the people in my life whom I care about born again? And what Jesus teaches us in verses 1 through 7 makes these very important questions. And I think you'll all agree with me that we should not just assume that everyone who says they're born again must be born again, right? A survey that was conducted five years ago showed that 30% of Americans view themselves as born-again Christians. That percentage is actually way down from, it's almost half of what it was 25 years ago, but that's still a lot of people in our country that if you were to talk to them would say, yes, I am born again. And it turns out that even some non-Christians are happy to think of themselves as born again. And Deepak Chopra 
The New Age guru is one of them. When he was asked to explain what it means to be born again in light of his own understanding of God, his answer was as follows. Listen to this. He said, born again simply means relinquishing the past and stepping into a fresh experience of life. Somebody who is born again is expressing the eternal cycle of life within an accelerated time frame. The one who is born again has a new interpretation and a new cognitive and perceptual experience of reality, unquote. So there you go. And you'll notice, guys, that in Deepak's definition of being born again, he doesn't include God at all. Instead, in his mind, being born again is something we do when we relinquish the past and step into a fresh experience of life. And if you ask Deepak if he has been born again, he would say, of course I have, because I have expressed the eternal cycle of life within an accelerated time frame, and I have a new cognitive experience of reality. My point here is to just illustrate the fact that there are many people that you will talk to in our culture today who would say that they have been born again. But have they? Have you been born again? And how can we tell if we have been born again? Well, Jesus, thankfully, helps us tremendously with this issue in verses 8 through 15 that we're going to be looking at today, because from what he says in the text that we're going to look at today, we can infer five things that we can expect from those who have experienced the second birth. Five things that we can expect from those who have truly experienced the second birth. And number one, let's word it this way, they hear the Spirit. They hear the Spirit of God. Observe what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 8. He says, the wind, and this, by the way, is the Greek word pneuma that is translated wind. The wind, the pneuma, blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound. That's the Greek word phone, which could be translated as sound or voice. So the pneuma blows where it wishes, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound or voice of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the pneuma. And we see that word again, only this time it's translated rightly as spirit. Jesus is clearly using the wind as a metaphor for the spirit here. And it's helpful to his purposes that the Greek word for wind is the same word for spirit. And regarding the wind, Jesus is voicing the following observations. In the natural realm, the wind blows where it wishes to blow, not where you wish it to blow. Secondly, the wind generates a sound, and you can hear the sound or the voice of the wind. And number three, but you can't perceive where the wind is coming from or where it is going because you can't see it. And then after making these statements about the wind, Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And what is Jesus' point here? Commentators offer different ideas, but I think if you want to understand Jesus' point here, underline the words, you hear the sound of it. You hear the sound of it. Jesus' point is that just as we all cannot see the wind or control it, but we can hear the wind, so it is true that those who are born of the Spirit can hear the voice of the Spirit. They may not be able to see the Spirit 
or fully understand how the Spirit works, and they certainly cannot control the Spirit, nor do they want to, but those who have been born of the Spirit can hear His sound and recognize His voice. Does that make sense? They can hear His voice because they have been given the capacity to hear Him through the new birth that they've experienced, which means that they can hear the Spirit when others can't. They recognize His voice even when others don't, and they have ears that can pick up what the Spirit is saying. They hear things from the Spirit that those who have not been born of the Spirit cannot hear. A couple years ago, my wife and I were um, doing some premarital counseling uh, with a young couple, and while we were talking, I was uh, mindlessly playing with my gel cap pen, and I have one here, and I was tightening it and loosening it as we talked, just doing this kind of thing. And wasn't thinking anything about it, but eventually the gal that we were meeting with said to me, Pastor, could you stop doing that with the pen? Uh, She said, it's making a piercing noise that's hard on my ears. And I was mortified, and I apologized to her. And then with her permission, I twisted my pen a few more times to see if I could hear the noise that she was able to hear And I couldn't hear it, and my wife couldn't hear it. But this gal and her fiancé could totally hear the piercing noise that this pen was making as I was twisting it open and closed. And it was a sad reminder to me that there are sounds that young people like them can hear that I can't hear with my elderly ears. And I've heard teenagers even have a ringtone that they'll put on their phones that they can hear, but their teacher can't hear. So they can get a notification that they're getting a text message, and they can hear it, but their teacher, who may be over 30, cannot hear it uh, at all. Well, what Jesus is saying here in verse 8 is that this is the way it is with those who are born of the Spirit. There's a sound that they can hear with their spiritual ears that others cannot hear, and that is the voice of the Spirit when He speaks. When the Spirit speaks, those who are born of the Spirit are uniquely able to hear His voice. And what Jesus is saying here in verse Eight provides us with yet another thing that I think we can add to the list that we have already begun. In verse 3, Jesus taught us that you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God as it ought to be seen. In verse 5, he taught us that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And now here in verse 8, Jesus is teaching us that you must be born again in order to hear the Spirit of God. Well, Nicodemus hears Jesus say this, and observe what happens in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And let's use some deductive reasoning here to understand what he's asking. Jesus has told Nicodemus in verse 7 that he must be born again, which means, obviously, that Nicodemus has not yet been born again. In verse 8, Jesus says that those who are born of the Spirit hear the Spirit, which is something Nicodemus obviously is not yet able to do because he has not yet been born again. So in asking Jesus, how can these things be? Nicodemus is asking Jesus, how can it be that only those born of the Spirit can hear the Spirit? when others cannot, and how can it be, Jesus, that you would imply that I am not hearing the Spirit? And Jesus' answer to Nicodemus's question leads us to a second thing that we can rightly expect from those who have experienced the second birth. Number two, 
they, those who have experienced the second birth, they embrace the united testimony of Jesus and the Spirit. They embrace the united testimony of Jesus and the Spirit. Observe Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question in verses 10 and 11. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. Notice how Jesus refers to Nicodemus here as the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was not just a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. In other words, he was the teacher of teachers, viewed by many as the top teacher in all of Israel. And yet, for all of his training and learning, and for all of his intellect, and for all the scripture that he had memorized, and all the study of the Bible that he had done, Nicodemus doesn't understand the things that Jesus is talking about here. And you might want to underline the words, do not understand. Do not understand these things. Jesus is going to level a total of three critiques at Nicodemus in this passage. And the first is Nicodemus's lack of understanding of the things that Jesus has just been talking about. His lack of understanding reveals that he is not born again yet. Born again people understand the need to be born again in order to see and to enter the kingdom of God as Jesus has just been teaching. And they understand that this rebirth is a work of God that enables a person to hear the Spirit when he speaks but Nicodemus is not understanding these things yet. And as we come into what Jesus says in verse 11, notice the five times that Jesus uses the first person plural pronoun. He says, we speak. So you can mark the word we. He says, we know. He says, we testify. We have seen and he speaks of our testimony. So the question we would ask is, and this is a question commentators ask, who is Jesus talking about when he says we and our? We know that Jesus is included in the we, right? But who is the other person? Some say that he's referring to his disciples, who were speaking the truth in Jesus' name. Others say that he's referring to John the Baptist, who was out there testifying to the truth about Jesus. And these suggestions are probably true on some level. But if we limited ourselves to this conversation alone that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, who are the most likely persons we would understand to be included in the we? Jesus and whom? I'll give you a hint. And I've heard the right answer already. In verse 8, Jesus has just talked about hearing the sound of the wind, which represents the Spirit. And he has basically asserted that those who are born of the Spirit hear the Spirit. Then he immediately says, we speak, we testify, and speaks about our testimony the speaking and the testifying that Jesus is mentioning are obviously things that are heard, right? So it seems that when Jesus says we and our in verse 11, at the very least, he is speaking of both himself and the spirit. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is this, the spirit and I are saying the same thing. The Spirit speaks in unison with me, Jesus is saying. If you are truly hearing me, then you are hearing the Spirit. If you are truly hearing the Spirit and receiving what the Spirit is saying, then you will hear me 
and receive what I am saying because we are saying the same thing. Whenever I speak, Jesus is saying, it is always we, the Spirit and I, who are talking. Does that make sense? And as John unfolds further, we're going to see that that we is always the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we learn here that the key way to hear the voice of the Spirit is to listen to Jesus when he speaks. When you listen to Jesus with an open heart, you are listening to the Holy Spirit. Jesus then levels another criticism at Nicodemus as he probes deeper into Nicodemus's soul. And this serves to explain why he knows that Nicodemus has not yet been born again. Look at his critique at the end of verse 11. He says, and you do not accept our testimony. You do not accept our testimony. Remember that Nicodemus was among those at the end of chapter 2, in all likelihood, who were believing in Jesus because they were seeing his signs that he was doing. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 24. But the problem with that group of people of which Nicodemus was likely a part is that while they were believing in his name because of the signs they saw, the problem was that they weren't really listening When Jesus spoke, they loved his miracles. They just weren't sure what they thought about what he was saying. And this is why Jesus, I think, says what he says here in verse 11. Essentially, he's saying to Nicodemus, the Spirit and I are speaking of what we know. We're testifying of what we have seen, and you are not accepting our testimony which shows that you have not been born again, Nicodemus. And this is why, Nicodemus, I am telling you that you must be born again. You must be born again in order to receive our testimony. Jesus then levels a third critique at Nicodemus in verse 12 when he says to him, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So you might want to underline the words, you do not believe. And perhaps even, how will you believe? So in verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you do not understand. In verse 11, he tells Nicodemus, you do not accept. And now here he says, you do not believe. And how will you believe? And all three of these critiques are connected. The reason Nicodemus was not understanding what Jesus was saying was because he wasn't willing to accept what Jesus was saying. And the reason he wasn't ready to accept what Jesus was saying was, quite frankly, because he didn't believe what Jesus was saying. So Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is showing Nicodemus his utter poverty of spirit, even to believe the truth of anything that Jesus would ever say to him. Now, a question to ask of this passage is, what are the earthly things that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 12? Whatever they are, They represent what he's already said to Nicodemus, so that narrows the field considerably. So earthly things would represent the matter of the new birth and the matter of hearing the Spirit, which are things that people on earth can experience, making them earthly and are making these matters earthly, and things that Jesus is able to use earthly analogies like natural birth and the wind to illustrate. Heavenly things, on the other hand, might represent those things that occur in heaven or in the hereafter, 
and would include truths for which there are no earthly analogies to help one understand. These would be the deeper things that are more complicated than the elementary matters of being born again and hearing the spirit that Jesus has been speaking about, which are already leaving Nicodemus fumbling in confusion, right? And here Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, all that I've been saying to you thus far can be put in the category of earthly things. This is kindergarten stuff, Nicodemus. Yet you are not understanding what I am saying, nor are you accepting what I'm saying, nor are you believing what I am saying. There's so much more that I could say to you of deeper heavenly things. But if you can't accept and believe what I've already said, then there's no way you will believe me on anything else that I say because you have not been born again. This is Jesus describing the hopeless state of a man who has not yet been born again. And from this, we can infer that the opposite must be true. And that is that someone who has been born again understands and accepts and believes the things that Jesus and his spirit say because they've been supernaturally enabled to do so through their new birth. Well, speaking of heavenly things, Jesus actually goes there and drops a truth bomb on Nicodemus. And in so doing, he teaches us yet a third thing that we can expect from those who have been born again. Let's word it this way. Uh, Number three, those who have been born again, they know that Jesus is the only one with his own authority to ascend into heaven. They know that Jesus is the only one with his own authority to ascend into heaven. Observe what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Here's a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying here. No one in human history has ever ascended into heaven of their own accord except the one who was actually in heaven from the very beginning and who descended from heaven, and that's me, the Son of Man, Jesus says. You might think it's an odd thing for Jesus to speak of himself as having already ascended to heaven when that's something that will happen later after his death and resurrection. But in the mind of Jesus, his future ascension is as good as already done. And his point here is that no one has ever ascended to heaven on their own, but Jesus can and he will after his resurrection. And the reason is because he is the son of man who has descended from heaven. It's where he came from, so he can easily return of his own accord. In fact, write down the reference, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel is looking at the night visions And he says, and I quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And Jesus is saying here, I am that Son of Man whom Daniel saw. And I have the right to go up to heaven and enter heaven on my own accord, by my own authority, because I'm the one who came from there. This pronouncement from Jesus about him being the only one who has descended from heaven should impact us uh, in at least a couple ways. Uh, First of all, it ought to leave us riveted to anything he might have to say on any topic, right? Nowadays, there's a fascination with people who claim to have died and gone to heaven and come back. I mean, it seems anymore that all you have to do nowadays is go to heaven for 90 minutes, just 90 minutes, that's it, and then write a book about your experience, and your book will sell millions of copies. 
because people are fascinated by what such a person who's been to heaven might actually have to say. They tend to think that such a person has special credibility because they've been to heaven. But guys, Jesus didn't just experience heaven for 90 minutes. He was there from all of eternity past. And he wasn't just in heaven. We've already learned from John 1 that he was in the beginning with God and he was God. And he came from heaven down to earth in order to live among us and speak to us of things heavenly and earthly. And we ought to be blown away by the opportunity to hear from this one whose prior residence was heaven. And when he speaks to us about anything in his word, we should view his words as having enormous authority because he's from heaven. And when he tells us about how to get into heaven, we should know that he's the ultimate authority on that topic because he's from heaven. And the fact that he has since returned to heaven on his own accord should leave us completely riveted by anything he chose to say to us when he was here on earth. And we have it all here in this book. And this is precisely how born-again people think They know that Jesus is the only person who came from heaven by his own authority, and they value him in everything he says for that reason. Hearing Jesus' declaration here in verse 13 should also leave us struck with the fact that Jesus is our key to getting into heaven. Jesus is our key to our getting into heaven. When Jesus talks about ascending into heaven in this passage, we should understand him again to be talking about going up to heaven by his own authority. And we should appreciate the difference between ascending oneself to heaven and being taken to heaven. My wife and I, just as an example, have a seven-month-old grandson. And if He's at the store with his mom, and someone asks where he is. No one says, oh, he went to the store. No one talks that way because he didn't go to the store on his own. His mother took him. So while it is true that many believers have gone to heaven, it's more accurate to say that they have been brought to heaven or taken to heaven, which makes them different from Jesus in his ascension, who ascended to heaven of his own accord. As for us, Jesus speaks to his disciples in John 14, 3, and he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be with me where I am. So technically, Christians don't ascend themselves to heaven They get taken to heaven by Jesus, and they get in on the authority of Jesus. Back in uh, November of 2004, uh, my oldest son and I took a trip to Washington, D.C. for my uncle's uh, funeral at Arlington uh, Cemetery, And while we were there, uh, my son and I, we walked right into the Pentagon building. And we walked around for a couple of hours and toured the place. And you know how we got to do that? Because we were with my cousin who worked at the Pentagon. And she had access. She could come and go as an employee of the Pentagon as she pleased. And as long as we stayed with her, we had access. And the same is true when it comes to, and by the way, that doesn't mean we went everywhere in the Pentagon. So don't get, uh, we were still very limited in the places we could go, but we stayed very close by my cousin 
throughout that tour. And the same is true when it comes to getting into heaven. If we're thinking straight and we want to get into heaven, all of us ought to ask ourselves, is there anyone who has been in heaven and has come from heaven down to earth and can ascend back to heaven by their own authority? Because whoever that person is, I want to find out from him how I can get into heaven and I want to attach myself to him. Does that make sense? This is the way born-again people think. They know that they can only get into heaven through Jesus. It's not through themselves or through their good works that they get in, nor is it through anyone or anything else. It is through Jesus and him alone. The question is, how does this work? How does Jesus make it happen that a person can get into heaven through him, especially given the fact that we have a sin problem? We are sinners who have been bitten by the serpent of sin, and we deserve God's judgment. We deserve to be shut out of heaven for all of eternity. Well, this leads us to the fourth thing that we can expect from people who have experienced the second birth. Number four... They know that Jesus must die for them to be saved and get into heaven. They know that Jesus must die for them to be saved. Observe what Jesus says in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This lifting up of Jesus is a part of what will turn out to be his path of ascent to heaven. And we will see in a moment that when Jesus talks about his being lifted up, he's talking about his death, which means that born-again people trust Jesus when he says that he must die in order for them to be saved and get into heaven. That's hard news. For us to hear, it offends our pride, but born-again people accept this truth, and they believe it, and they come to conclude that their lost condition is evidently so severe that the death of the perfect Son of God was necessary for them to be saved and one day brought to heaven. They understand and accept and believe Jesus when he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now in saying what Jesus says here in verse 14, um, as many of you know, Jesus is referring to the incident or the episode recorded in Numbers 21, verses 5 through nine. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. The children of Israel were in the wilderness. They were complaining against the, the Lord, and God responds by sending serpents to them as instruments of his judgment upon them. These serpents start biting the people, and many of them begin to die. The people come to Moses, and they confess their sin, and they ask him to intercede with God on their behalf, and Moses does that, and God responds by instructing Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole, and then to position that pole in a place where everyone could see it. And from that point on, anyone who got bit by those serpents, if they looked at that serpent on the pole, they would be cured. And Jesus is saying here what that bronze serpent was to the people of Israel in Numbers 21, I will be to the world. The world is under the judgment of God. They will die under that judgment. And in order for people to be delivered from God's judgment for their sins, I must be put upon a post and die lifted up in death for all to see. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Now, Nicodemus probably did not understand the full import of what Jesus is saying when he speaks of being lifted up here. But it's likely that for all the other things Nicodemus was probably confused about, it's likely that he would have understood Jesus to be saying something about his eventual death, at least on some level. And we can surmise this from something that happens later in John's gospel in John chapter 12. In fact, if you want to keep your uh, place here in John 3 and go to John 12 and verse 32, Jesus uses the same expression telling people that he will be lifted up from the earth. In verse 32, he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In the very next verse, John says in verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And it actually seems that the crowd, at least some in the crowd, had some understanding of this. For in verse 34, John says, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're taking that statement of Jesus that he must be lifted up as contrary to the notion that the Messiah would remain forever. So it seems from their question that even they, the crowd, is understanding Jesus to perhaps be speaking of his death in some way. So coming back to John 3, It's quite possible that here in John 3, Nicodemus is understanding Jesus to be saying something about the necessity of his death for the deliverance and salvation of those who have been bitten by sin. And now Nicodemus is left with having to process what he thinks about that. But whatever Nicodemus thinks about that thought in this moment What is clear is that born-again people embrace what Jesus is teaching here. They understand that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness for the rescue of the rebellious Israelites who could not deliver themselves, even so Jesus must be lifted up in death in order to accomplish the salvation of people, of sinners. And born-again people believe in this dying Messiah which leads us to the fifth thing that this passage teaches us that we can expect from those who have experienced the second birth. Number five, they believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus and in him find eternal life. Let me read again what Jesus says in verse 14, and then we'll read on to what he says in 15. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Born-again people believe in Jesus in a way that is different from, it seems, the people who were believing in Jesus at the end of John 2. Those referred to at the end of John 2 were believing in Jesus, again, because of the signs that they saw him doing, the miracle signs that they saw him doing, but they were not accepting and believing his teaching. Additionally, they would never believe in a Messiah at that point who is lifted up in death on a cross. Jesus knows these people, they love the signs that I'm doing right now. But when I show them the ultimate sign, which is me being lifted up on a cross, they won't believe. They won't like that sign. But someone who is truly born again will have the humility to look upon the crucified Savior who's dying for them and believe in him. They will humbly embrace the fact that they need someone to die for them, to take God's judgment upon himself on their behalf, they will recognize that they have been bitten by the serpent of sin and that they will die in their sins unless they look to Jesus and they will look upon Jesus 
and know that it is only through a dying Savior that they can be saved and have eternal life. And Jesus is that Savior for them. And they will humbly and gladly embrace this crucified one and believe in him as their Savior. And they will have eternal life through this dying Savior. There are people out there nowadays who claim to be Christians who do not believe that a dying Savior is necessary for salvation. Back in November of 1993, 2,000 women gathered in Minneapolis for a conference in which they explicitly said they want to reimagine God. And among the speakers was a Dolores Williams, a professor at Union Theological Seminary who disparaged the doctrine of the atoning death of Christ for sinners. And she said, and I quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff like that, unquote. Well, that's what Dolores Williams thinks. But that's not what Jesus teaches in our passage today. And it's not the way born-again people think. Born-again people would agree with Jesus that Jesus must be lifted up in death upon a cross in order to accomplish their rescue. And they're happy to look away from themselves and to believe in him and in him find eternal life. So here's a quick suggestion for you all um, as we wrap things up this morning. If someone tries to teach you something about salvation or about whether, for example, the atoning death of Christ is necessary um, and what they say contradicts something that Jesus himself says, here's my advice. Just stop and ask yourself the question, Between Jesus and this person, which one has actually descended from heaven and can ascend to heaven on their own authority? Also, ask yourself the question, which one of these two died for sinners and came back to life and ascended to heaven? Jesus is the only right answer to that question, which means that you ought to listen to him and put more stock in what he says than in anything that anyone else says to you. You put Jesus up against any wise person of this world who wants to teach you something or any peer who wants to influence you, and the gravitas of Jesus far outweighs anyone else. If you're really interested in hearing the Spirit's voice when he speaks, then listen to Jesus. Read your Bible, which is all about Jesus and is inspired by the Spirit of God. And everything we've learned that the Spirit says, that's what Jesus is saying. And you got a whole book of stuff to read and to listen to and to ponder This is what born-again people do. Amen? From this point of the narrative of at least John 3 forward, we don't hear anything more from Nicodemus. Uh, From what Jesus says to him in our passage today, it's obvious to the careful reader that Nicodemus is not born again, at least during this conversation with Jesus. But it seems more than certain that Nicodemus ultimately received Jesus' challenges and became born again at some point. And that may have happened at the end of this conversation or happened at some point thereafter. And we know this because Nicodemus shows up in the Gospel of John on two later occasions. And his actions clearly portray a man who had received Jesus' words here in John 3, and took them ultimately to heart and 
who had ultimately experienced rebirth. In John chapter 7, uh, the Jewish leaders are wanting to get rid of Jesus, but Nicodemus, to his credit, bravely speaks up and urges them to be careful not to render a judgment against Jesus too quickly. And listen to what Nicodemus says in John seven fifty one. He says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And notice that Nicodemus uses the word hear. Jesus had told him in John 3 that those who are born of the Spirit of God hear the Spirit of God and they receive the testimony of Jesus. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in John 7, 51, Nicodemus is encouraging people to hear Jesus before they make a judgment against him. Even later in John, we see that after Jesus dies on the cross, Nicodemus shows up in the narrative once again. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea got permission from Pilate after Jesus' death and then came to take away the body of Jesus for burial. And then in John chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, the text says, And Nicodemus came also who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. And so they, so they, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Nicodemus may not have fully understood what Jesus meant when he talked about being lifted up in John 3, but when Jesus was crucified on the cross, Nicodemus would have realized this is what Jesus was talking about. And Nicodemus' willingness to bravely assume this responsibility of caring for Jesus' body with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes reveals I think much about the state of his soul. It almost seems like he was expecting Jesus' death and was ready for it. When preparing Jesus' body for burial, Nicodemus probably could not have imagined the resurrection of Christ that would occur on the third day, yet he seems to be giving every evidence of having believed in Jesus by this point recognizing that Jesus was lifted up just as he predicted so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. Nicodemus would have known that this death somehow, some way is a part of God's plan and that this dying of Jesus somehow is essential to my own salvation. And what would possess Nicodemus to take this bold of a step of so identifying with Jesus that he was willing to tend to his body after he was crucified, surely Nicodemus had been born again. Which means that so far in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus encountering Andrew and John and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel, and he's able to win all of them to himself in ways that are unique and specific to each person. And here in John 3, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, and he rocks his world by speaking jarring truth to Nicodemus, and he leaves Nicodemus flustered and panicked and fumbling for answers, but ultimately, Jesus, it seems, won Nicodemus to himself. So we learn once again that it's not so much you and I that win people to Jesus, it is Jesus who wins people to himself, just as he did with Nicodemus, and he's good at it. And the only question for you this morning is, has Jesus won you to himself? Have you been born again? Based on what we've learned this morning, let me ask you some diagnostic questions. Do you listen to the Spirit as He speaks to you through the testimony of Jesus? 
Do you believe that Jesus descended from heaven and that he's the only one who can ascend to heaven of his own authority? Is Jesus your ultimate authority on every topic that he addresses, especially on the topic of how to be saved? Do you believe, as Jesus teaches here, that you are under the judgment of God, a judgment that will prove eternally fatal unless you're delivered somehow? And do you agree with Jesus that he had to die in order for you to be saved from that judgment of God? And are you looking to Christ and him crucified and believing in him for your salvation? If your answer to these questions is yes, then I think that's a fair indication that you have been born again. If your answer to these questions has before today been no, but you are ready to answer yes for the first time, then seize this moment to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive him as your Messiah. And you will thereby reveal by that response to him that you have been born again. Because believing in Jesus and receiving him and calling upon his name alone for salvation is what born-again people do. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for a passage like this that just teaches us so much about not only you, but the way of salvation. It serves as a mirror that we can hold up to evaluate ourselves and know whether or not we have been born again. It provides us help, Lord, as we speak to the lost and help them to see truth as you would want them to see it. I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us, including myself, to just be so excited that we have a book called the Bible that contains the words of someone who came from heaven who was in heaven from the very beginning, who is the creator of all that is. And not only is he from heaven, but he is God. And we get to read his words that he has left for us. It should be unthinkable that any of us who believe in this one would allow our Bible to remain closed for days and not take up this book and with great excitement read the words of this one who was in heaven from the very beginning. Remove the scales from our eyes, Lord, that we can see as Jesus wants us to see as Jesus is seeking to help Nicodemus to see. But part of the path to being able to see is we have to recognize and admit our blindness, our deafness, our poverty of spirit, and we, we confess that to you, Lord, that in and of ourselves we can't see and we can't hear as we ought. If there's any here this morning, Lord, that has not believed in you, Lord, we just pray that you would do this miracle of rebirth in them and draw them to yourself that they might see as they ought and believe and give you the glory. And we will do the same. Empower the testimony of this church as we present the gospel to the people of this community. We pray for your blessing on churches throughout the city and throughout the world that are doing the same. 
in these days, Lord, days of ever-encroaching darkness and confusion and despair and dysfunction, perversion and sin, the light so needs to be seen. Empower the church to shine this light forth, Lord, and to hold your name high. For you alone can rescue and you alone can save. And to you be all the glory. And all God's people said,